You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our reading is in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with all of you. Uh, I'm sure for all of us, as with me, there's no place that I'd rather be on the Lord's day than with the Lord's people, expressing our praise and gratitude to the Lord who has redeemed us. Well, uh, Joey is still on his paternity leave. Um, Their daughter, Nora Blake, was born last Sunday, actually. Uh, Baby's doing well. Um, And so uh, I'm here preaching for the next two uh, Sundays. We're currently taking a break from Daniel, but we will get back to that when Joey returns. Um, So uh, weeks ago, when Joey was preparing for his paternity leave, he asked me to preach two sermons on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we're going to be doing these next two Sundays. And, and coming on the heels of uh, Pastor Carter's sermon on the resurrection last Sunday, this is a, quite a fitting uh, thing to come after that. Well, as Protestants, uh, we know that we have two what are called ordinances or commands that the Lord Jesus has given to his church to observe in perpetuity until he returns. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, as a, a Baptist church, uh, you know, we get baptism, you know, and we get it right. Boom. <laughs> Slammed you. I'm not afraid to get controversial up here. And both of these are symbols of the gospel. They're, they're pictures of what the Lord has done, is doing, and promises yet to do for his bride. Now, we understand that baptism is a, a picturing of death and resurrection in the Lord Jesus, We understand that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Jesus' death and his second coming. But what we might be missing in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, as we understand it, is the the corporate reality of these ordinances. We are tempted, I think, to understand these things in terms only of ourselves, in terms only individualistic. It's my profession of faith that is being validated in baptism. It is my time to meditate on what the Lord has done when we participate in the supper. And these things are true, but friends, it is so much more than this. And it is the individualistic approach, as we'll see in our text today, that can really be a source or a symptom of problems in the church The Christian life is one that is not primarily defined or understood in terms of self-identity, but it is primarily defined and understood in terms of corporate identity. Christ has saved his bride. We are a royal priesthood. We have a communal identity. 
That's what's most fundamental. And so your life is not about you. Your life in this church is not about you. It is about the Lord Jesus, and it is about others. It is about our union together with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is an occasion to remember this, to celebrate this, to cherish this. But what about when we don't do this? What about when we are tempted to be consumed with our own interests? Well, this is the problem that the Corinthian church was facing. And the church was full of division and dishonor. And this was nowhere more clear than in the Lord's Supper. And we see that in our text this morning. So if you have not already, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As Ben read for us, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 22. And what we'll see as we study our text this morning in in what is a part one study of the Lord's Supper is that there is a a wrong way to celebrate the Supper. And that this wrong way actually destroys the Supper and turns it into something entirely different, an occasion for, for selfish indulgence. This is an abuse of what the Lord has given the church. And not only is the ordinance twisted, but the church is harmed. The church ceases to be the church because the unity of the church is destroyed. And so what we will focus on this morning are are those things that would destroy the church. What will do this? The two things in our text. It's simple. Division and dishonor. Nothing will rend a church apart more thoroughly than these two things. A church that is divided against itself and shows dishonor to one another will quickly destroy its fellowship. And the fellowship meal, the Lord's table, becomes empty. It's a farce. It's pretend. It's make-believe. Friends, the reality is that the greatest threat to the church is not external, it is internal. What will tear the church apart is not the persecution of outsiders, but the bickering and disdain among the insiders. And what will cause problems in the church is you. It's me. It's all of us. Clicks, inconsiderate behavior, downright nastiness. This morning, we need to look critically at ourselves and really examine and see where, where we might be, where you might be contributing to this kind of harm in this church so this might be a, you know, a little bit of a heavier sermon, a little less you know, upbeat and hopeful. That's okay, because that's what the text demands. But part two is going to be sweet. So we might be lifted low this Sunday, but next Sunday we're going to be uh, lifted high. And I hope that uh, after these two Sundays, we are all together going to have a more robust understanding of the Lord's Supper. So let's come to the Lord in, in prayer as we seek uh, his help this morning. Father, we thank you for the, the gift of this church, the gift of this assembly, these saints who you have called together to be a family in Christ. We're thankful for the preciousness of our Lord Jesus and how he leads us and guides us and sustains us in our sojourning, in our life together. We're thankful that, that though we are in many ways tempted into selfishness, 
that there is grace in our Lord Jesus, an infinite amount of grace, grace that is greater than all our sin, as we sang this morning. And that is a very comforting thing for us to know. Help us this morning, we beg, Father, as we study your word to be humble before it and to let your word do its work to pierce the division of soul and a spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We want to leave this, this time more committed to one another in love and the unity of the Spirit. We want to leave together this time more submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Help us, we pray, Father, to do these things. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. So how is the church destroyed? First, it is destroyed through division. Destroyed through division. Look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So Paul, having just commended the Corinthians for their adherence to his teachings earlier in this chapter, now expresses his displeasure with their disobedience. Uh, they were not worthy of being commended, he says. Uh, something about their, their church gathering, so when they come together, is flawed. And it is flawed because what it is supposed to be achieved by the gathering is not what's happening. In fact, something about what is happening is actually harmful to the church. It's not as though something neutral were happening, some small error that could be gently corrected and rebuked were happening. When this church gathers, it is for the worse. It is bad. It is harmful. When they gather for the church, it should be for the better. Uh, we see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, the church should be building itself up in love. The church should be attaining unity of faith and of knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The church should be stirring one another up to love and good works. The church should be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the church should be praying together. These are the things that will strengthen the church as she gathers, but what these Corinthians were doing was for the worse. Evidently, they are not doing these things. This is quite an indictment uh, right off the bat. Uh, what Paul is about to get into is, is heavy for the Corinthians. It's a strong rebuke, and it's as though he says to them, uh, this problem is so significant that if you will not change, you are better off staying home than ever coming together as a church. That's crazy. Think about that. How massive of an issue must this be for that to be the case? The worst thing that the Corinthian church could do for its spiritual health was to come together. Why? How? That's well, because of the division that was in the church. Look at verse 18, 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So this church is gathering for the worst because there is division. And Paul has heard a report that when this church gathers together, there are divisions and factions among them. So in a sense, the church is not really coming together as a church. Their church is coming divided as a church. And Paul has already touched on this issue of divisions. We'll look at that in a minute. And he's going to continue to talk on that when he talks about the spiritual gifts in the following chapters. 
And this word divisions in the Greek is the word schismata, uh, which means to tear or to rend apart. Uh, But why is there this division, this tearing apart of its fellowship? You can jump ahead and look at verse 22, and you will see that there there were obviously sociological differences in this church. Some were rich, some were poor. And this may not have manifested in in arguments between them, but perhaps they did isolate themselves from each other. And they were a part of the same church, went to the same church gatherings and events, but never really talked to each other. They never engaged with one another. They keep to their own cliques, the people like them, the people that are most comfortable for them. And they were content in this. And the rich might have refused to share their food with the poor or to even sit with them and eat with them to share a meal. The poor might have scorned the rich and looked upon them with suspicion and contempt. Or perhaps it was that they were arguing regularly. And maybe this division referred to a difference of opinion, a view on certain issues. So instead of the church coming together to enjoy fellowship and to be built up, all they did was argue tear down, dig their heels further into the ground. In verse 19, we read something strange from Paul. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There must be factions? What's he talking about? Factions are a feature of the church, not a bug. And what, what is interesting, I think, about this word factions in the Greek is that it is the word uh, heresis, which maybe sounds familiar to you. That is the word for heresy. So what is Paul saying? That's okay for heresy to be among the church? Well, not quite. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, it's important for us to know that the word heresy didn't mean quite then what it means to us today and now. The word comes from the idea of of making a choice. and What it came to represent was a a group who held a given view or opinion of something that became something of an identity marker for them. And so in in the Gospels, this word is used to describe the groups like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Nazarenes, usually translated as party or sect. So it's not always being used in a bad sense to describe some sort of evil group, but sometimes it is. In Galatians 5.20, this word is used to refer to one of the works of the flesh. And there it means selfish contention. And I believe that's the use and the meaning of it in our passage today as we've already been seeing. And not only does it make sense with the flow of the verse, but it makes sense in the context of the whole letter. So you can turn in your Bible, if you like, to chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, if you want to see this. Uh, Paul introduces this letter by addressing the issue of division and factions. He says, starting in verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And this report mentioned might even be the same report that Paul mentions in verse 18 of chapter 11. He's heard the report and understands the church is divided. And and notice how this factionalism 
has led them to quarrel, to fight amongst themselves. There is quarreling among you, Paul says. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Notice what Paul says here. The Corinthian church is not mature, but infantile. The Corinthian church is not spiritual, but of the flesh. Why? Verse 3 said that there is jealousy and strife among you. And what is this rooted in? Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? That sounds exactly like what Paul was saying in chapter 1. Members of, of this church were divided by cult of personality. And, and along with this might have come some slight variation in the theology, but we can see that they were more committed to their favorite preachers than they were to one another. And we have the same obsession, don't we? This is a problem for us. We have our favorite preachers, our favorite theologians, our favorite authors, and two things can happen. We attach ourselves to them to the degree that they have the most influence on our identity as Christians. And... We can make judgments about others based on who they listen to, based on who they read. If I could use two very popular preachers this day, John MacArthur and Tim Keller, I think are great examples of this in terms of followings. Uh, You might say, well, I follow John MacArthur. If he says it, I believe it. I've read all his books, I've listened to all his sermons, He gets it right, and that's fine. It's not wrong to learn from John MacArthur or Tim Keller. These are gifts to the church. But what if another comes and says, yeah, you know, I'm not really much of a MacArthur guy. I'm more of a Tim Keller guy. I think that, you know, he gets a lot right, but MacArthur gets wrong. Uh Uh-oh. The temptation here is to render judgment. To assume, if you are the MacArthur fan, that the the Keller fan is just kind of weak, doesn't get it, and is maybe two steps away from becoming a Marxist. It's true. It's the argument that's going on on Twitter. It's crazy. Or the temptation, on the other hand, is to assume that the MacArthur fan is unyielding, arrogant, maybe a sexist, and a and a dispensationalist. Yikes, whoa, could you imagine? It's a theological joke made for you folks who get that. (laughs) And so you might be tempted to look down on one another, to render judgment, or even argue. And by argue, I don't mean having friendly disagreements to edify one another. 
I mean that there is anger and frustration in your hearts to the degree that there is bitterness that wells up inside of you. This person is not a brother or a sister. They become an enemy. And your opinion of the other decreases. It doesn't seem like love is really a part of the equation at all in those interactions. And this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. Rather than focusing on the things that unified them, they were focused on the things that disunified them. There were personality cults segmenting everybody. There were divisions sociologically between rich and poor. And in the regular interaction of life of the church, there was constant arguing about difference of opinions. That's why Paul, again, makes his appeal in the beginning of the chapter, of the letter, rather, in chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. But that second half of verse 19 is interesting that there must be these factions, these divisions, in order to expose those who are genuine. How so? Well, it is through the struggle of conflict that the genuine are recognized. As we have talked about many times throughout Daniel, it serves as a trial that tests the genuineness of one's faith. This kind of evil is necessary because it serves as a refining fire that shows the purity of the gold. Put it another way, you don't know who the peacemakers are until you need someone to make peace. You don't know who the merciful are until there are those who do wrong and instead of vengeance, they receive mercy. You don't know who the godly leaders are uh, who can be an anchor for the church are until there is crisis. And though the Lord uses these things to expose these good things in the church, you do not want to be this person. Though the Lord might use it, do not contribute to this kind of destruction and dismantling of the church. And do you find that controversy follows you? Do you find that you regularly are arguing with people? that you are most often expressing your difference of opinion toward others? Do people find you difficult to, to be around or to work with? When you enter a conversation, do people sort of roll their eyes when you begin talking? This is not the kind of person that you want to be. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Don't be that guy. Don't do it. And the problem for the Corinthian church is that they were full of these people. And if we are not careful, if you are not careful, you can become this person. It does not take much. Just a little selfishness will propel you into this kind of behavior. Be the one who is tested by the fire of division, not the one who is lighting the fire of division. So how is the church destroyed? It is destroyed through division. Division and factionalism are a, a cancer that will spread and kill. And this leads to the next point. It leads us, when we are divided, to dishonor one another. The church is destroyed through dishonor. Let's read verses 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What is the first thing that Paul identifies as a major ramification of their division? It is the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk much more about the Supper next week. But for now, it is sufficient for us to know that this is all related to the Supper and that the Lord's Supper has to do with the unity of the church. And what Paul says is that their divisions disqualify the Supper that they were having from actually being the Lord's Supper. And that should be jarring. They thought they were doing right. They thought that they were obeying their Lord. But what they were doing was actually an act of disobedience, a perversion of what the Lord had given them. In other words, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, how dare you call this the Lord's Supper? You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. And evidently, it is not the the meal itself that makes the supper the supper, but it is the how and why the church eats the supper that makes it the Lord's Supper. More on that next week. So what is it about how they are eating this meal? Well, that phrase in verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal, that really shows the, the heart of the error. When the Corinthians gathered to eat this meal, it was a, a free-for-all. Those who wanted to indulge, they indulged. Even to the point of drunkenness. Those who were perhaps more timid or who, who wanted to give deference did not eat and instead went hungry. Maybe the different factions ate their own food without sharing. We see in verse 22 again that there is a rich-poor dynamic. And part of the function of this time was to share with those who did not have. Everybody was bringing their own food and hurried to eat it before anyone else could eat what they had brought. The meal itself was the emphasis rather than the body, rather than its meaning, rather than its significance. And rather than being a a feast of sacrificial love for one another, it became an occasion for selfish indulgence. For if they were really, truly celebrating the Lord's Supper, they would be caring for one another and seeking to honor one another. And what we have to understand is that self-centered behavior will always, every time, lead you to dishonor others. It's an inevitability. This is a pretty lousy potluck. Uh, The rich are drunk and the poor go hungry. How does this foster any love? And surely this only adds to the divisions of the church. This meal that was meant to foster greater fellowship ended up destroying fellowship. And imagine how this might play out. Uh, Those who were rich likely had more time to plan and prepare for this dinner. Uh, perhaps even having a slave do all the work involved with the preparation. And those who were not rich, but also not poor and not a slave, just kind of the average citizen, would probably be working that day, but could join when their work was complete and probably still bring food, though perhaps not as much or as opulent as those who had the money and the time. Others were slaves and poor. Some would likely have been able to join on time, but sadly others may have had the duty of cleaning up after the meal of the family to which they were a slave and could only come much later in the church meal. 
And imagine their shock when they finally arrive with eager expectation, tired, hungry, ready to find encouragement, longing for Christian fellowship, longing for what is maybe the one good meal that they will have that week. And what they find are people who are drunk. What they find are people who have no concern for them. What they find is that there is no more food. There's no brotherly embrace, no encouragement. The rich didn't share with the poor, and they ate in their own little groups. In fact, they hurried so that there wouldn't be anything left. And the meal that was meant to demolish their differences ended up building up greater walls. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. Can you imagine showing up to a potluck like that? Maybe a small group, we do potlucks at small group. That would be incredibly awkward. And then maybe after the awkwardness sets in, it would be disappointing. And the disappointment probably would quickly turn into anger and frustration. And then there's bitterness in your heart. And then there's sadness. The crushing sense that maybe I don't belong. Maybe this isn't a place for me. How much deeper would this push down the wedge of division? And this is not right. This is opposed to the very nature of the church. Paul said earlier in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So as Christians, we are the fellowship of the body and the blood of Christ. And what these Corinthians were doing tore at that very reality of what the church is. And this is dishonoring both to God and to the members of their church. And this is what Paul addresses in his line of questioning in verse 22. In frustration, Paul offers possible reasons why this would be happening. Well, maybe these people don't even have homes and this is the only place for them to eat. Or maybe it's that they hate God and that they hate the poor and they want them to be ashamed. Well, let's look at this line of questioning a little bit closer in verse 22. First, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? What this is getting at is that the, a gathering intended for worship should never become something that God never intended. The Lord Jesus instituted the fellowship meal, and it was to bring the church together in love and unity. And so it was right, it was good that these people were coming together to share a meal, but how they did this was destroying the fellowship. And again, that's tragic because it goes against the very purpose of the meal and Jesus' desire for his church. You might recall in John chapter 17, where Jesus prays for what? The unity of his church. But our sinful condition, your sinful condition is such that you will take even the good things that God has given you and corrupt them, not only for your own purposes, but for the purposes of Satan. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants the church divided. 
We cannot do things that will be detrimental to what we are told to do. And so he says that if you're going to do that, just stay home. Second, do you despise the church of God? And this is what we were kind of just talking about. Uh, whose church is this? Whose church is Citizens Church? You know, we might be tempted and, to say that it's ours, and there's a sense in which that's right. I would agree with that. But fundamentally, this is the Lord's church. It is God's place. It is God's people. It is God's rule. It is God's book. Everything is about God and his rule. It's not about you. And so to go against what God has clearly laid out in his word shows that, that your issue is with God himself. And pride will tempt us to do this. We long to do what we think is best according to our own wisdom and sometimes without even consulting the wisdom of the word of God or the wisdom of the members of the church. And as those who claim to be submitted to God, going against him shows that rather than loving God, we despise him. We despise his rule. And God has not given what belongs to him, honor. Instead, it is a dishonoring of him. And that should bring great shame upon any who would act in this way. Third, do you humiliate those who have nothing? Not only does this dishonor God, but it dishonors members of the church. Paul is asking, are you this heartless for those who are poor? And these Christians would have done well to hear James's exhortation on partiality in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man and shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When a church starts to do these things, it is no longer a church. It is a club. It becomes a club. We aren't concerned with showing honor to others. We are concerned with satisfying our own desires and our own appetites, what serves us best. And Paul ends here where he began in verse 17, that he will not commend them for their evil, selfish behavior. Paul will not commend them for this. This is not how the church is to behave. Paul is altogether disgusted with them. And such a simple act of eating a meal shows the sinful condition of the heart. How Christians participate in the supper shows what they think about the church and what they think about God. And these Christians cared more about themselves than others in their church, and rather than showing love, they heaped dishonor on others. Division and dishonor. That was the condition of the Corinthian church. Divided over sociological differences, divided over matters of opinion, divided over Christian leaders, and therefore they dishonored one another. They neglected to care for one another and consider one another. This is utter selfishness and it was destroying their church. And we sometimes forget how our actions affect the church. I don't you know, mean the church in some vague, abstract, institutional sense. I mean a church that is made up of real human beings. 
We sort of live our lives on autopilot, coasting and making decisions impulsively or without any serious thought or consideration. You have, you have something and you decide to share it with someone. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you decide to keep it for yourself because you want to enjoy it. Maybe the thought to share doesn't even cross your mind. You put together a dinner or a game night and you decide to include someone who needs a friend. Or maybe you don't. Maybe that person is difficult. Maybe that person's a buzzkill. Or maybe the thought doesn't even cross your mind. You see a need and offer to help out by cooking a meal, watching their children, or providing financial support. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't want to spend yourself in that way because you're already too tired or you don't really know them too well. Or again, maybe the thought doesn't even cross your mind. You celebrate a birthday of one of the members of your small group. Or maybe you don't. And maybe you don't want to go through the effort of making a cake or spending the money. Or maybe the thought doesn't even cross your mind. Selfishness does not need to be actively malicious to hurt others, to hurt the fellowship. We can be so focused on ourselves that we don't even consider others. And all these things, these decisions about whether to do or not to do, they'll build a culture that normalizes a certain kind of behavior, good or bad. And so we, as a church, must work and pray together for greater unity that these would not be occasions for selfishness. They would be occasions for love, for service, for humility. So we must be aware of selfishness that causes divisions. It means that you need to take this seriously. You need to be vigilant. You need to see in your own heart where you have selfish impulses. Find even a little selfishness that can be identified and eliminated. And I promise you that these small things will begin to add up to great things. The stranglehold of sin in your heart will become less and less, such that your natural impulses will slowly, over time, not perfectly, become showing honor to one another, showing love to one another. You'll be quicker to be able to find and celebrate those things that unite you to your brother's and sisters. But we know that there are natural fault lines in any church. Age, marital status, race, political affiliation, social class, hobbies, interests. These are the things that we must be careful to undermine. These are the things that bring the world together. I'm not saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves. But friends, the world can find unity in these things. The world will find unity in these things. Unity in these things does not require the power of the living God to unite peoples. People will find a way to do these things themselves. But it is when these things are not present, and yet the church is united, that's when the gospel is displayed. That's when the glory of God is made known. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 3 when talking about the uniting of Jew and Gentile. 
And in Ephesians 3, he, he says that this union makes known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are united in something far more precious than hobbies and interests and stage of life. We must see that these things are not what motivate our behavior in this church. Again, it is not wrong to enjoy hobbies with one another. It is not wrong to spend time with people your own age. But real Christian community comes not from surrounding yourself with people who look just like you, people who share the same way of thinking as you. But real Christian community comes from surrounding yourself with people who look like Jesus in spite of looking nothing like you at all. It's a community of people who are not interested in making others to be more like them, but to be more like Jesus. And that happens through conflict. Again, not arguing and hating one another, but it comes from bumping up with one another. I'm sure married folks can affirm and agree that with that. Yes? Amen. Come on. This is the culture that we want in this church. We want to work to build relationships with people who are not like you. Isn't that the kind of community that you want to belong to? A kind of place where you take a survey of this room right now and that you know that I could come to any one of these people and I could bear my soul to them. Isn't that something? Rather than being around people who are mostly strangers, people you don't know, the people who you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when tough times come, they've got your back. Isn't that the kind of person that you want to be for others? Isn't that the kind of culture we want to create in this church? But it's hard work. It's not easy. It's uncomfortable. Small things that we can do to contribute to that? Go to small group. Small group plug. But for real, go to a small group. Be challenged by people. Challenge others. Uh, come to women's events. Come to men's breakfasts. Uh, and let me say this, that um, at the end of this worship gathering, if you just talk to the same people that you always talk to, you've missed the point. You've missed it. If after this service, you go and you have lunch with others, which is good, I commend that, but it's the same people you always have lunch with, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. See, the reality is that we cannot tackle our own selfishness apart from the church, not in any meaningful sense. Uh, you need relationships, but you don't just need relationships, you need commitment. You need covenant. And this is what profoundly makes Christian relationships different than worldly relationships. Worldly relationships are transactional. I do for you, so long as you do for me. And when you are burned, what do you do? You cut ties. You back off. That person's bad for me, so I need to not spend time with them anymore. And you harbor bitterness. And even marriages are like this. 50%, I'm sure we all know the statistic, 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. 
A recent survey showed that the top two reasons given for divorce, lack of commitment, arguing. Coming in, like I think it was fourth place, lack of shared interests, poor communication. Because God is a God of covenants and commitment, we are a people of covenants and commitments. This is why we value church membership here. And membership is joined together by a covenant, an agreement about how we will commit to love one another well. This is why we value marriage as a covenant as defined by the scripture. And though it is often harder to work through conflict, to work through differences and division, you will be made holy by it. This is the Lord's design. And as long as you run from these things, you will stunt your own growth in godliness. Or even worse, you might contribute to the division and dishonoring in this church. So I wonder how you have contributed to this kind of division, to this kind of dishonoring among our own church. I want you to really think about that. That's not just some rhetorical question. I really want all of us to consider and think about these things. We all do this. None of us are immune. This might be a good thing for you to think about and discuss with your family. Might be a good conversation to have over lunch even. But really think and consider these things. Will you have the fortitude? Will you have the courage to really look and see? Maybe you ask somebody, how have you seen this in me? See where this is true for you. What might you need to repent of this morning? Who might you need to go and talk to? Brethren, this is tough. It's a hard calling. Nothing about this is going to be easy. But by the grace of God, we are forgiven for our sins in these ways. And not only are we forgiven, but we are able to begin to walk in newness of life. That's good news. God will forgive you of your failures, of your sinning in these ways, and he will give you the most precious gift, repentance. And you can truly do these things because the spirit of a living God dwells in you and works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your heart will change, and so will your actions. And God's will is that we would be one people united by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit under the lordship of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. We read together an excerpt from Philippians chapter 2 in our corporate reading and prayer of response. As we conclude, let's read through the longer portion of it and see how this is true. Let's see how the gospel truly does unite us. How the Lord wills for us to be united and how he will provide for us to do it. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's one of the best portions of all of Scripture. That's so good. Do you see how the gospel unites us? And do you see how it does give us one mind? Do you see the call of our Lord? God will help us to do this. For we have his mind because we have Christ, who is our Lord, our power, and our example. And this is all connected to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper stands in sharp contrast to the ways of division and dishonor. The Lord's Supper is a call to love one another. It's a call to consider and think about one another. It's a call to self-denial and confession. It's a picture of the gospel that reminds us of our union together with Christ. We'll dive more into that next week. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your mercy and grace shown to us through the Lord Jesus. We know that there are many ways in which we sin still to this day. And what a precious thing it is for us to know that though we still sin, that we are found sure in Christ. What a precious gift. Father, help us to be men and women, brothers and sisters who are so committed to our Lord, so committed to the gospel that we would love each other in radical ways, that we would actively pursue one another and go against the things that would divide us naturally. Help us, Father, to be humble. This is a a difficult task. It's a high calling. By your grace, we are able. Help us to encourage one another to this kind of stuff. That we would be a church that is magnifying the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.